It's Tuesday, 16th of September 2014. This is HPR episode 1597 entitled Extravehicular Activity. It is hosted by Steve Smethurst and is about 15 minutes long. Feedback can be sent to smethurst at tiskali.co.uk or by leaving a comment on this episode. The summary is NASA guidelines for EVA from spacecraft are detailed and painstaking, not so films. This episode of HBR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HBR15. That's HBR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hello, my name's Steve Smethurst. This is my first HPR. Maybe one day I'll do a what's in my bag or how I got into Linux. But this one is about EVA, extravehicular activity in space. Why EVA? Well, I like sci-fi and it all started with seeing a sci-fi movie, The Europa Report, made in 2013 by Sebastian Cordero. It's an interplanetary mission in search of life. It chose Europa, a moon of Jupiter, as its destination. And I liked the way its characters behaved. The engineers behaved like engineers. The scientists behaved like scientists. And the captain behaved like a captain. This, I have to say, is in stark contrast to Ridley Scott's 2012 film Prometheus, where nobody behaved like anything you would let into a scientific mission, let alone on board a spacecraft. Now I better give you a warning, this podcast does contain spoilers. Okay, so I like sci-fi that takes its science seriously. I like 2001 A Space Odyssey by Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick. I like Moon, made by Duncan Jones in 2009. But I have a gag reflex that prevents me from ever watching Signs again, that film by M. Night Shyamalan, done in 2002. Incidentally, 2001 had probably the most famous EVA in movie history, when Dave Bowman, without a helmet, blew himself into the Discovery airlock. So there I am one evening, enjoying a sci-fi adventure, thinking, wonder what they make of Europa? Oh, it's an icy ball with lots of radiation. Who's that? Oh, it's Neil deGrasse Tyson. Wonder what they do to land. Hmm, that looks rather Apollo-like. Wonder how they look for life. Drilling through the ice, that's the ticket. Later I find out that they had a consultant on set, a guy called Kevin Hand, an astrobiologist and expert on Europa, from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. By now, I'm expecting good stuff from this movie, maybe more than just a nod to the science. But then what happens? Two EVAs. EVA 1. In a flashback during the journey, two engineers 
James and Andre go EVA to fix a failed communication system. Andre rips his suit and James gets squirted by rocket fuel. Only one astronaut survives. I'm thinking, that's pretty damn clumsy. There just has to be procedures to stop that kind of thing happening. Where are the tethers? Where are the special tools? Where are the decontamination procedures? Then comes EVA2. Down on the planet now, with no conclusive signs of life, marine biologist Katya is getting frustrated. So she decides to walk to a more promising location, alone. Stop! No way! You wouldn't do that! There's got to be some operating manual somewhere that says, don't leave the spaceship on your own. One of the four other crew members could and should go with her. I exclude Rosa, the pilot, who has to fly the survivors back come what may. Katya goes out alone and, you guessed it, does not come back. Now, with 50 years of space flight to date, not one cosmonaut or astronaut or space navigator, as the Chinese called theirs, have ever died on an EVA. Now, that's not because EVAs are a walk in the park. It's because of the phenomenal design planning and care that go into making EVA happen. So I started looking at the uh, NASA rules for handling EVAs. Let's take the two astronaut issue. There's not been one man EVA since 1971 when David Scott stuck his head out of airlock of Apollo 15. Before that Buzz Aldrin walked alone from Gemini 12 in 1966. So although I couldn't find written Thou shalt not EVA alone, in the 358 spacewalks since 1971, all have had two crew members. NASA categorised EVAs in different types. There are planned and unplanned. There are mission enhancing, mission success and safety critical. There are simple, specialist and complex EVAs. Reasons for going EVA, as NASA recognises the need for moving a payload, for maintenance, for experimentation, for personnel transfer and for satellite deployment or retrieval. It's recognised that there are advantages of extravehicular activity. You can work flexibly in many ways. You can be more dexterous than can an automated system. You can see more clearly than through a camera what's needed. Hazards are listed as things like sharp edges, pinch points, kick loads and touch temperatures. Now surfaces in space are really cold and the gloves have to be heated. Another hazard is equipment failures. You can have venting of equipment, you can have corrosive leaks, explosions, ruptures, battery leaks, electrical discharge, molten metal from welding equipment. You can get tethers breaking or being caught. There are environmental hazards like radiation, fluids having been discharged in space, micrometeors, debris. All of these things can be very hazardous to anyone on the outside of a spacecraft. NASA recognises limitations of extravehicular activity. There can be sensory degradation. There's a limited time you can stay out there. While you're out, you have limited mobility. So there's a huge number of design considerations. Many of these, most of these, are designed in advance of the mission and built into the mission programme. 
Design considerations can include things like vision being affected by variation in atmospheric attenuation, being affected by transmission of light through helmets and visors. Eye-hand coordination for the suited EVA crew member is modified by the limits of the spacesuit. Sensory perception and reaction time are altered because of spacesuit encumbrances. Sufficient food and drink must be included for the total EVA duration. Air passages within the suit must be protected from vomit. There must be subsystems for the containment of urine, menses and diarrhoea. Of course, EVA radiation doses will depend on radiation exposure limits set for the entire mission. And while you're out on EVA, that's just one portion of your whole dose. There are other detailed considerations like restraint design for tethers, hooks, footholds, workspaces, designing your field of view, designing the operating controls that can be worked from inside a spacesuit, designing the lighting to give you a proper view of what it is that you're trying to work on. Airlock design has to provide sufficient passageways for suited crew and there must be mobility and transport aids to help the crew member navigate around the outside of the vehicle. Now bear in mind that what I've done here is just cherry pick some of the considerations that are listed by NASA. But then there's actually the EVA procedures checklist. And this is when you're actually preparing for and executing an EVA. Now presuming that all the equipment maintenance checks and readiness checks have already been done, you have about 30 minutes of airlock preparation and testing. You have another 30 minutes of changing components for the suit to fit the astronaut. Modern thinking is for standard components to be assembled to make a suit fit any crew member rather than have each crew member having their own suit. It takes 170 minutes to prep for an EVA. The procedure includes things like positioning heart rate monitors. It says, take one aspirin tablet. There's a 15-minute pre-breathe test for both crew members involving exertion and blood oxygen level tests. You have to configure the communication system to minimise noise. Then you can put on the communications cap. You check communications. You verify that biomedical data reads through the comms channel. You have to stow your IV glasses. Gotta have shades to look cool space. You have to lock the waist ring. You have to check the electric harness. You check the drink valve position. You put on the gloves. You lock the gloves. You check the glove heaters. You check the wrist mirrors. You put on the helmet. You close the helmet. You find the EMU TV power cable. You connect the EMU TV count power cable to the TV. You check for cooling, you check the water, you check the power, you check the fans, you check the communications, you check for air leaks. You check all your ordinary tools, the specialist tools, the restraints, the harnesses and the bungees. And when you've done that and more, then, and only then, are you ready to depressurise and leave the airlock. And an EVA may last between four and eight hours. After the EVA, there's a 30-minute procedure to take the suit off, a 10-minute procedure to disconnect internal equipment. For the EMU, you have to recharge the water supply, recharge the EMU oxygen supply, replace the EMU battery, power down the EMU and stow the EMU correctly. For the suit, you have to recharge the in-suit battery, you replace the in-suit equipment, such as light bulbs and things, you have to clean the suit and you have to uh, deal with wastewater dumping. 
Now that is detail. This podcast is not about the scientific accuracy of the movie. It's about spacewalks. Having said that, though, I've just got to throw in this gem. In Nature, volume 479, on 16th of November 2011, Brittany Schmidt et al., researchers at the University of Texas, Austin, published a paper called Active Formation of Chaos Terrain Over Shallow Subsurface Water on Europa. They described how, in the Connemara zone of the chaos terrain, part of Europa's surface, the ice may be as little as three kilometres thick. Then, in the film, the Connemara chaos was the target zone, and the drill broke through the ice at 2,800 metres. Now, you've got to be impressed by that. However, here's the ultimate spoiler. In the end, there was a monster. Protoplasmic sludge just wouldn't fill the cinemas. It had to be a monster. This is Steve Smethurst for Hacker Public Radio. I'll see you again sometime. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.